This is the Championship Plus Podcast, the show that shines a light on English rugby's second flight. Join us every fortnight and check us out on the socials at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Championship Clubs Podcast. I'm Ross Hancock, Marketing and Media Manager at Cornish Pirates. Making my debut on the show today as guest host, alongside pod regular Ben Gulliver. Gully, how are we? Yeah, good thanks mate. Um, in the middle of a house move, so a little bit stressful at the moment, but... Uh, in terms of sort of general health, all good. Obviously, loads of rugby on at the moment, whether that's championship, international, and the women's game as well. So it's uh, we're pretty stacked, aren't we? And lots to talk about this week. So it's great to have you on, mate. It's um, loving having these guest guest hosts. It keeps me on my toes. And yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on board. And it'd be good to explore explore a bit of pirates and and, and your in your role down there, but also sort of talk about the league positively, which we like to do. Great, yeah, it's great to be on. It's uh, like you say, it's a bit of a pirates flavour to today's show with our guests. So we'll we'll come on to them in a minute. But but first, we've got to look back, really, haven't we, to to last weekend's you know a dramatic weekend in the championship again. We've had late drama, we've had red cards, bucket load of points. Gully, the table's starting to take shape, mate, isn't it? And and it's the beginning of a long block. But there's there's also that real air of unpredictability in the league this season with the results, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there is. It's um, we sort of look towards the the bottom of the league at the moment. I've been. I'm quite good friends with a few of the guys up at Scottish, uh, Sam Hanks, Dubai Poe, those guys. And I must say, they they rang me the other night, actually. It's 4am in the morning, so that's got to go in there. So I don't know what they're up to. So the pair of them were ringing me and trying to give me a bit of, bit of shit, but that's fine. Uh, <laughs> that would have been me 10 years ago. So all good for them. But yeah, the, I was chatting to them before the um, before their Nottingham game, and I, I kind of thought they might have a chance up there. And they, 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 they ran them close in the end. And I mean, it's a hell of a scoreline, isn't it? 41-31. And as you, as you spoke about, the, the, the league is producing high-scoring matches at the moment. So I think supporters must be really enjoying it. Um, but it was it's nice to see Scottish getting a bit closer um, because we don't, want, we don't want one team sort of at the bottom of the league do we sort of struggling all year. So it's good to see that they're, they're hitting a few straps. And, you know, you had a tough game up there, didn't you, when you went up there not long ago? Yeah, yeah, we did. I think everybody, you know, you, you look at a 100-point defeat and you, you, you worry about how their season can, can look. But, you know, Paves always talks about it with us, if, if we come off the back of a poor result, it's that emotional response. And they definitely had that emotional response the week after against us. And, you know... They, they looked a good outfit and I, I'm sure, you know, like we saw with Hartbury earlier on in the season with us, I'm sure that they'll they'll pick up some results as they go and they've certainly got closer and, you know, they picked up a, a try bonus point at the weekend again. Yeah, and it, it's just it's just good. I'm just I'm just pleased because some good guys at that rugby club and obviously they've, they've, they have they missed last year, didn't they? So it's it's a bit of a, it's been a bit of a battle for everyone at that rugby club and we've, you know, it's, it's pleasing to see that on the field it seems to, they seem to have a positive reaction to that poor result. And it's like you said, the Pirates winning up there, massive bogey team for you guys as well, isn't it? So I think it's your first win up there in the, in the champ for a long time. With yeah, ten, 10 years it was, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> bloody hell, that's a long time. Crazy, <laughs> crazy start. <laughs> then move on, to, move on to Saturday. So um, sort of, they're all really close games, aren't they? All within a score. Every losing team picked up a bonus point by, by your guys, but we'll touch on that in a minute. But Amtel... Amtel don't win in Richmond. When I was playing there, we never won down there. I think we got a draw once uh, when they were in National 1. So, great win for Amtel. Uh, I think Josh Galstein needs a shout-out for getting a hat-trick and not making Team of the Week, which has caused a few issues on our on our WhatsApp group with uh, with the other guys in the Champ Clubs podcast. So, Scalsey gets a uh, gets a little little shout out. So good good on Amtel winning at Richmond for the first time. I know they beat Scottish down there, but they've not actually beaten Richmond in Richmond. I don't think. Uh, Donny going down to Hartbury, as as you guys know, Hartbury's a tough place to go and picking up a good rent win. And it's like 
with Donny, I would have thought at the start of the year would be people's sort of favourite, not favourites, but being in around the top of the league and they had a tough start to the year. So for them to win at Harper is great for them. And then Ealing, I mean, Ealing Jersey, that's very close, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't know if you've managed to see that game or not, but that's, <clears throat> Jersey managed to pick up two bonus points there. Not many teams do that at Ealing, do they? Yeah, no, not at all. We, we uh, obviously, they they kicked off slightly later than us, so we, we may have had a, an eye or two on that on that score. But, you know, Jersey, as we'll find out this week, and I know Muggs is going to be a tough fixture over there. And, you know, they're they're another one of those teams that you expect to be in and around the top. And and they, you know, they gave Elin a scare for a long, long period in that game. Not many teams will come away from the from their from their place with two bonus points. So, you know, and they very nearly turned them over. And they're they're yet to welcome them over to the island as well later on in the season. So yeah, very interesting result. I, I did catch the highlights and you know, both playing a decent brand of rugby. So it just goes to show how competitive this league is at the top, doesn't it? I think, yeah, I think Jersey's Mall is a massive strength, isn't it, of theirs at the moment? Um, so, you know, like you say, we're getting into that period of uh, of the year where Champ Rugby goes a bit, may become a bit more forward orientated than normal just because of the weather and the, and the pitch are becoming a bit heavier. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to be making for an interesting sort of return fix to that one. And, you know, like you guys at Pirates will always be keeping an eye on that, but obviously looking after your own shit because you've got to go and, go and do that. And you had a bit of a battle Saturday, is that right? With Because um, I sort of sort of twit the feed and you were losing at half-time. So how, how, how was that as a, as a fixture and obviously coming out the other end with a good win? Yeah, very good win, you know, to, to have a 5-0 five, five match swing, uh, in, uh, match point swing, sorry, is... is not something that, look, that looked on the cards at one stage, but I think the the key thing with this squad and and this you know this season, there's no panic in in and amongst the boys. I think they they trust their processes and and they you know they always back themselves to get the job done. But you know, Pirates Bedford games are always they're always close affairs. They're always open and entertaining affairs, and you know they it, so it proved again. Bed, we looked at Bedford's backline before the before the game, and they remember that ten twelve combo of uh, Grimaldby and, and Maisie. So. Uh, they perhaps changed how they wanted to play the game uh, or how we viewed they might change the game, but they still came out with that, you know, that free-flowing attack that they've got, got and they scored some nice tries. Former Pirate and Alex Day went over for a, for a beauty as well. Uh, and Dean Adamson, who, who got in the team of the week, scored a, scored a nice try and, you know, picked some good lines. So, yeah, I think it was, it was dubbed the battle of the, of the Pirates forwards against the Bedford backs, but... Yeah, I think the key moment in the game was obviously the red card just before half time. I think, um, you know, knowing that we would, I think we trailed by six at the break, knowing that we would go into the second half with that extra man would just be a case of, you know, sticking on task and, and trusting the, the processes. And, you know, we, we got the job done. Um, and, that, and that's all that can be said. It's another another bonus point win and, you know, another win at home at the Monet and, and you know, trying to build a bit of a fortress there. And, yeah, run beaten there this season, obviously, beat Ealing, beat Ealing there earlier on in the season. You know, there's tough fixtures to come. You know, you, you can't look ahead too far to an Ealing or, you know, obviously we've got Jersey this weekend. But, you know, this 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 league now is so tough and so attritional that, you know, every weekend you can potentially come unstuck. And, and we found that out earlier on in the season against Hartbury and it nearly happened against Scottish as well. So you've got to be on your game every week. Um, you know, and I'm sure that the focus will be, you know, bang on for this weekend. It's I'm just looking at the league now and that game this weekend's huge really isn't it it's only we're only eight games in it'll be the eighth game of the season and you know if you guys win you'd expect Ealing to win this weekend you stay in the hunt now if you lose you're going out to plus a win aren't you still so you're going to sort of massive game yep second against third and and obviously we say we don't want to look ahead too far but you know we know we've got Ealing on uh, on New Year's Day so 
Um, you know, that's a big game ahead, but we've got some some tough fixtures before that. I think Doncaster might have something to say about it at the weekend against Ealing. They're, you know, they're a good side on their own patch. And, you know, that's the thing, isn't it, with, a, with an, an Ealing, a, a Pirates, or possibly even a Jersey, that, that becomes a, you know, your home game against those teams become a cup final and you, you can't underestimate that. And, you know, teams can find find something and put in a performance and sometimes get the result. So, yeah, we, we'll see what happens at the weekend. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to look at because I'm just looking at it now and you've got Coventry in ninth. Coventry are a bloody good team. And, you know, you've got... <laughs> The, the, all the teams have got to go again against each other, so you can see teams picking up results and, and or losses before the season's out. And we won't, I don't think we'll see what we saw last season, where teams go pretty much unbeaten for the year. So it depend on sort of squad strength, um, injuries, you know, and, and a bit of luck as well, I suppose, with, with refereeing decisions as the season goes on. But yeah, it's it's, it's really good. Another great fixtures this weekend. So it's uh, it's taking shape, but it's also still keeping everyone enthused because it's so tight. I think. Yeah, no. So it's like you say, it's that that part of the season where you know the games are coming thick and fast. We've got that that block now until the new year before some more time off for the boys. And yeah, like you say, we'll start seeing what the squad strength is like in the teams. And you know, this is the time of year when teams start to pick up injuries. The weather comes in, and yeah, the tactics change, and it becomes more attritional. So yeah, but yeah, I think the league will by the end of this block will start to take really take shape. Yeah, and we can look forward to sort of where it will be at the end of the year, but. Probably a good time to bring in our, in our second pirate of the day. So I'll hand it over to you for that. No problem, mate. Yeah, like we said, we mentioned earlier in the show, there's a strong uh, strong pirates theme to today. Uh, we're delighted to welcome out of a very busy schedule, no doubt, uh, Cornish Pirates and, of course, Trove City Football CEO, Rebecca Thomas. So welcome, Becky. Hello. Hi, Becky. Thanks for coming Hi. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. So, Becky, uh, thanks, thanks for popping on. I think um, it's great to... Great to have you on, and have someone at, from your, at your level. We often speak to, to players and coaches, but someone at, at CEO, sort of start again, CEO level is is great for us. Um, and it's, I suppose, for for the listeners and for, and for us guys on here, it'd be a little overview of your role role at the club, and obviously you with Troy City as well, and how how you've sort of ended up there, and you know, been down at Pirates for ten years now, and just sort of a, a brief overview of your role within the club and how things sit at Pirates at the moment. Yeah. So um, yes, yeah, so I've been at Pirates for. Just over 11 years now, actually. So um started, as I say, when just came back from Camborne uh, as financial controller. I'm a chartered accountant. And um, yes, I joined back in 2010. And then from there, kind of grew with, with the business, I guess. Um, became finance director back in 2018, I think. And then just about four weeks pre-COVID, I think, um, took on the CEO role as well as finance director. Um, and then, yeah, I think the week after the RFU cut the funding to the championship and then another three weeks later when COVID hit. So it's been an interesting, you know, couple of years in the CEO role. I don't think it's, um, you know, definitely don't think it would be repeated or I hope not anyway. But yeah, and uh, yeah, it's going well down at the Pirates. My role kind of covers a lot of things. We're a very small team, to be honest, um, you know, as most championship clubs are. So as I say, I kind of cover the CEO role and finance director role, doing, you know, all of the account side as well. Um, and, you know, I, I, over the years, I think I've pretty much covered every job role that's in the Pirates. <laughs> 
I've filled in for hospitality. I've filled in for website and social media for a month or so. I've filled in for, I, I run the club shop on a match day. So <laughs> I pretty much cover most spaces or I have done over the time, which, you know, I think is important to just get to know, you know, got to know the business inside out, um, you know, exactly how everything works and, and, you know, try and keep it running smoothly. And I think that's, you know, that's what we do now. We've got a really good team around us now. And um, as I say, we went through the COVID spell, which was tricky. And we lost a few members of staff back in the summer, which, you know, was a big change for us. But so we've got, you know, three new backroom staff members now, which have all settled in. um, And we're, you know, really enjoying the season now really enjoying being back together and, and a new team yeah I think it's like it must be great to understand at that level understand all the roles within within the club and then you sort of have that sort of credibility with staff as well don't you and everyone within it and you talk about being there for sort of 11 years and you've got Gav and and Paves obviously that have been there for a long time yeah uh, how's how's your relationship with with those guys how close is it all is it from the coach yeah. of it to to your to your side of the business I think that's another one of our huge strengths in that we are a very, very close team. Obviously, Gavin Paves have been here the whole time. I've been here um, and even Matt Evans now is our team manager. He joined in the year after I started, I think. So so all of us have worked together a long, long time and we know each other. We know each other's ups and downs and we've been through an awful lot together. Um, and I think that's, you know, again, one of Pirates' huge strengths um, that, you know, off, on the field, we have Gavin Paves who, you know, have dedicated years and years of their lives to this club. And what they do is absolutely amazing. You cannot underestimate what they do for this club. Um, and then off the field, as I say, I've been involved for many years as well. And I've covered, you know, every job role and everything inside out. So I think between, you know, the core of us, um, we get on extremely well and like I say we we know each other we're like a family really to be honest you know even day-to-day stuff you know we just it's nice it's a really nice feel I was at um I was at Sam Betty's wedding in the summer you'll see Sam Betty's a, a Pirates legend isn't he and a Cornish legend to be fair uh, and Gavin Pays are there and it's so evident that their their passion and love for the for the club is is just there for all to see and I think sort of it must be. I don't, I don't know if it is a worry for you guys, but they, they, the job they do, and the, you know their credibility within the game. There's got to be people around the around the country looking to poach those two because they're, yeah. they're good. So that you know, is it you know, is that are those conversations ever come up, or is it just sort of? Yeah, obviously, naturally, like you say, what they do um, is outstanding, and it doesn't go unnoticed, and especially when you beat Saracens <laughs> you know you'd be Ealing you know something something's going right and it obviously you know raises the profile of the club and of them you know and the players so so yeah those got you know the conversations obviously arise um but their dedication you know to the club and what it's about like you know like you know you played with them and they've come right through and they've developed so much themselves and as coaches from that you know, then at the moment, you know, their dedication is to to us and where we are, and we're all kind of on the same on the same train, if you like, to to try and make it happen. Yes, it's it's good to hear, and uh, you like uh, I'm just thinking about um, sort of recruitment side of it with with pirates, and you spoke about sort of the budget cuts. Um, now, when I was playing for pirates, it's a long time ago. There was 
that the money was good in the league and there was there was a genuine opportunity to go and earn not huge amounts of money but good, a good salary at Pirates and you could attract a player from I don't know from a London club or from wherever because because the, the money was 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 good down there. Now, how does it work in terms of your recruitment sort of strategy? Now, obviously, you, you, Paves and Gavin go, yeah, we want this guy and that guy, but you've got to f- put it into the budget side. You've got to think of family as well, haven't you, and opportunity yeah. in, within Cornwall. Are you, are you a big part of that side of it as well? Yeah, so, um, so yeah, I get heavily involved in terms of the budget side and spend a lot of time with Gavin Paves through all of that process. Obviously, they're doing the talent ID um, and those kind of conversations. I do have conversations with agents and things to help them out. But it is one of our it's one of our downsides as well as upsides. People either love the Cornish dream or it's, you know, a hard sell. It's a beautiful part of the country. And obviously at the moment, what used to be, you know, also quite reasonable to live here. In the last 18 months, it's now not so reasonable to live here. Um, and that's again been one of our massive challenges because, you know, we've faced budget cuts. You know, the salaries aren't there in the championship anymore um, to that extent. You know, basically, if you want to play in the championship, you've got to, it's got to be, you know, your dream and your passion because you're not doing it for the money really anymore. Um, and so, you know, to come here and uproot your life is also a big ask, you know, partners and children and things like that. Like you say, the job opportunities aren't there, um, you know, to the extent that they might be in different parts of the country. But there's also the upsides of, you know, the the way of living down here and and the beautiful kind of um, countryside and beaches and everything else that that brings. Yeah, I was just thinking about um, sort of job opportunities and it's what came straight to my mind was the the stadium. And we need to obviously touch on that because that's, Mm That's surely a, a positive or potential positive thing for, for Cornwall and the South West is if it was to happen, you've got job opportunities, not only for players and coaches and attracting more people to the club, but also for the for the community. Um, when I joined Pirates, one of the conversations <laughs> of joining was about there was going to be a stadium. That was in 2009. <laughs> so, uh, where, where are you at with it? Um, there's a lot that goes out and, you know, it'd be great to know what you can share with us. Uh, yeah. Just to... Just I don't know, just to, just just share and see where where you guys are at and, and how far down the line are you with potentially a new stadium? Yeah, so yeah, obviously as everybody I think knows, it's been going a long, long, long time. Um, yeah, we've had highs and lows along the way, and I do genuinely think we are you know in the best. I know it's been said, but in the best shape that we've been for a long time and getting it actually started and built. Obviously we. We kind of revisited the business plan earlier this year, um, you know, post-COVID and everything. And um, it was kind of rehashed a bit in terms of what one of the floors was going to be. Um, previously, it was going to be kind of business centre. It's now been mapped out as a as a rehab and a concussion centre, which is a lot more relevant to, to things that, you know, have been quite prevalent in the media and things recently, player welfare and all of that, you know, as well as, providing something which is you know for the people of Cornwall really and beyond because you know it it's going to be the first kind of center of that kind and um and it's for you know public and private use so so yeah I think that element of it within the stadium does really make it you know such a great asset to Cornwall you know it's not just about pirates playing there Truro City playing there you know it's for everybody um you know yes you know, we'd love to have the stadium to go and play there. And yes, we'd love to be in Truro and a bit more central. You know, getting down to Penzance on a Sunday and things isn't the easiest for people. 
Um, so yeah, we we can't, you know, we'd love to, you know, be there. And I just think it's in the best shape now. We have to get Truro City back to Truro because obviously we've moved them out of county at the minute because we had to give up the ground. Um, you know, the developers that had been there in the background for many, many years. Um, and we, we were trying to tie it in, obviously, with the start of the stadium. The timing obviously didn't work. And and for them, you know, they had to get the development underway. So we had to leave there. So now we have to get Truro City back. You know, we can't keep them out of county. It's detrimental to, you know, the players and what we're about there as well as supporters. So at the moment, you know, obviously it's disappointing that we didn't get the 14 million from the central government in the budget, but we are still pushing hard. But, you know, they, they've allocated the funding to local councils. So it will be for us to apply to Cornwall Council to try and get the funds through that means, um, which we can do you know, within the next few months. Um, and we are working on like a phase one approach, which would be um, like the pitch and floodlights and to just get Truro City back um, so that we can actually get something started. Oh, fascinating. I'm just sitting there going, wow, there's a lot, there's a lot going on with the football club as well. It's, um... Is Dickie still quite heavily involved with, with it all? And yeah. You know, is he, is he, yeah. So in his role, is he? Where does he spend most of his time now? Is he still in Kenya a lot, or is he still? Yeah, sort of... he's back in Kenya again now. Actually, so through lockdowns, he came across within uh, at the start, um, and then spent uh, many months in the UK through through the initial lockdowns and things, and then he did get back to Kenya um, for a short spell. And then ended up coming back again um, because of uh, COVID situation over there. So he came back to the UK. Obviously, we were still in lockdown here, especially up in London. But yeah, so he has spent a lot of time in the UK, um, although holed up in his flat in London. Um, but he's been back in Kenya now for a good few months. And he's coming back to the UK next week, actually, just for a short spell. So he's coming to a, the Doncaster game next week. He's a huge, huge part of that story, isn't he? As well. Yeah, huge, huge part. And it certainly wouldn't be, you know, still still an ambition of everybody's, you know, across Coolmore if it wasn't for him. Yeah. Ross, I suppose you, how, you've not been in the, the role a great amount of time, have you? Like, how, how have you settled in with, with, with Becky and the team and what sort of your, your views on that, that side of... Of pirates that maybe you didn't see from the outside, and you know, have you have you found it all? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've obviously I've naturally always taken a, an interest in the club um, from the early days. You know, being from the area as well, and watching you know local rugby and this level of rugby, and you know, always you know dreaming of having that Premiership rugby on your doorstep. Um, but yeah, no, I've, like I say, I've I've been in in post since uh, beginning of August. Uh, I've been I've actually been down here volunteering on a match day before that for uh, several years as well. So I sort of I knew how the club worked and 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 the people, but now having seen it behind the scenes, it's given me sort of a, a greater insight into you know such a fantastic job that everybody does. Like Becky's touched on it there. It is it is like a a family down here, and that that extends to beyond the staff with the the players and how they engage and interact with the, the staff here. Everyone, you know, is one big team and, you know, everyone speaks to everyone and everyone gets along and, you know, everyone's got the same sort of drive, vision, ambition. You know, they want to see this club succeed and do as well as it can. And, you know, we've got all the the right tools to do that in terms of, you know, you know the back room, the, the coaching, the, the facilities, you know, that we hope to get in the future, the, the players, and, and we make the most of everything we do. You know, we... 
we we take every single cent out of everything we can in terms of in you know how how we put our best foot forward um you know and i'm just, I'm, just, I'm just delighted to be a part of it to be honest it's been a you know fantastic first few months and yeah, I hope to be here for, for a long time and, and see us get to where we want to get to. That's a good good way to lead into my next question, actually, is sort of the goal is, is the goal the stadium or is the goal the premiership? What Or how, how does that sort of... It's the, really goal, the goal is sustainable rugby, I think. I'm glad you said that. Because, that's... because <laughs> you know, we are where we are with a lot of things, I think. Um you know, we can't, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what the future is for the championship. We don't know what the exact future is for the stadium at the minute. You know, we've all got the same drive and ambition, as Ross says, and and that doesn't stop our aspirations and stop us pushing for those goals every day. But the drive is sustainable rugby, because without that, we don't have anything else. So I think that's where I, we need to be. I, I had a conversation with someone at another, not Pirates, at a different club player, and we we're talking about what what is success at championship level. And I said sustainable sustainability. You know, if your if your business is sustainable and you can you know generate the right amount of money to to make it work, is that a success or is it pumping a load of cash in and losing a load of money and winning the league? And it's a real difficult one in rugby yeah. because you've got your yeah your head and your heart, haven't you? And it, I don't know if it's always run run the right way at certain clubs. Yeah. They're wrong at clubs. London Wales, prime example. That's so it's, but yeah, it's, it's really refreshing to hear, hear you say that. Yeah, and I think, you know, we do have to remember it's easy to get caught up in that throw money at it, we want to be the best, we want to get to there, you know. Yeah. But for how long? Like you say, it has to be sustainable and it has to be fun. At the end of the day, we're playing rugby, <laughs> which, you know, we're all doing it because we love it and it has to be fun. I think you can get to a point where you sap the life out of it and you're doing it for the wrong reasons and I think Covid and everything else that you know clubs have been to to just retain squads retain players that want to play at this level like we say there's not heaps of money in this league anymore and you know you're doing it because you love rugby you love playing rugby and you, you know there's the dream of becoming a premiership player isn't there but I think just bringing back that fun element of actually enjoying what we do again, you know, making it sustainable and making it enjoyable is is kind of our goal, really. <laughs> on the on the stadium sort of goals, obviously the concussion centre that sounds just phenomenal, but yeah, uh, something that I probably need a trip to, to be fair. Um, but um, in terms of other sort of community sort of social responsibility, that side of it. How obviously does the Pirates amateurs and the Pirates mini and juniors and a lot of clubs? You, you, I think the way it's going is you, you look at an amateur, say, and they've got that side of the club there in place, and it sort of supports the the first team. Is the is it would, would those guys move with you as well on, on that side, I mean, the mini and junior side, and would there be a, a full pathway opportunity for a women's team as well? That those sorts of things. Is that yeah. all things you? Are so yeah, so Penzance and Newlin amateurs, and obviously their mini junior section will stay in Penzance. You know, the Mene and the club will still exist. They will still exist. Um, we've, you know, we've we've affiliated to Penzance and Newlin, obviously, anyway, at the moment. Um, but with a move, you know, yes, obviously, a lot of clubs do have the history in the mini junior section of things and things themselves. Obviously, Cornish Pirates was formed, you know, for Cornwall out of 
out of nothing, obviously, many years ago. Um, and rugby is so strong in Cornwall and those mini junior sections of your Penzance, your Penryn, your Redruth, your Camborne, they're so strong. And, you know, my son plays at Redruth and we don't want to take away from that. You know, that's that's history. That's what Cornwall is about and those areas. And that's huge to them. We don't want to take away from that. We want to support that. You know, we want to support that with a stadium where those teams can all come and play they can have a day out, they can have a mini tournament or whatever it is. But the individual clubs also need to survive and exist in their own rights. Um, so, you know, it's about supporting that. And yes, you know, we would love to develop a Cornish Pirates women's team, you know, that's, you know, perhaps can enter some leagues and work its way up the same as we've, you know, looked at um, a touch, a Cornish Pirates touch team. You know, there's a few touch teams within Cornwall that kind of struggle to get numbers themselves and you know to kind of bring everybody together in one central point you know under the brand would be great um but we definitely don't want to take away from what's already there you know there's a brilliant rugby infrastructure in Cornwall and it's just you know bringing that all together and being part of it really yeah I'm just thinking from a player's point of view now and so if the football's going to be there what's what are you thinking for pitch wise? Is it going to be grass or is it going to be plastic? But <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, age old question. We've got obviously, to get to that point, I suppose, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you know, we know player preference would be grass. Yeah. It, you know, it is a community use stadium, and to get community use day after day after day, you know, it has to have an element of plastic to it. You know, you're never going to be able to use it day after day after day and get that change between rugby and football, perhaps, you know, within the same weekend on a grass pitch, although we would love to think we could. <laughs> it comes a revenue stream as well, though, doesn't it? It's yeah. another, yeah, it's sort of, you've got to think, like you say, sustainable. Exactly. You have to think, yeah, you have to think. And I know, yeah, I know there's varying thoughts on plastic pitches but obviously we will be putting in the one that is the safest and and the best that we can <laughs> yeah um Truro college actually have just put in like recently put in a brilliant 3g pitch which is like the latest um version that's approved for rugby and they say it's absolutely brilliant is it well uh, yeah I, I never really, I don't know, I always used to fear them when I was playing on them. And then when I came yeah, off, the you know, thing, yeah. I, I actually didn't mind it when I came off. I felt a bit better. But the the, the mental sort it's of... the mental side, yeah. Yeah, to going on it. And I love training on it because you don't get dirty. I, I coach it. <laughs> I've coached ladies now with Georgie and that's a that's a plastic pitch. And it's great to coach on. That's <laughs> <But laughs> washing. Washing machine survives a lot longer. <laughs> Just get crumb everywhere else. But um, what's the sort of future sort of in, like straight away? We've got sort of big picture. Um, you know, how how do things look sort of over the next few months? Yeah, yeah. so obviously we've had a good run so far, um, which is great. You know, like I say, post COVID and coming into this season, uh, we had quite a shift in our squad. You know, we lost quite a few key squad members who have been with us a long time. Um, and we've brought in, you know, some younger guys. Um, and, and that's always, you know, a daunting experience, probably more so for me than, you know, the coaches. But, you know, it's it's how they fit with the with the club. And, you know, it naturally takes a bit of time for them to integrate and, you know, learn what the coaches are about and learn what our players who have been with us a number of years are about. But they've really settled in, to be fair. And I think that's evident from especially the last few games, which have been, you know, they've been tight or they've been close. Um, and perhaps, you know, a while back, 
if we were that way in the first half, we struggled to come back from that. Whereas we've shown real depth, I think, and and persistence to come back from from some you know some tough first halves over the last couple of games. Um, you know, and and winning always makes everybody's mindsets you know a certain way, so it helps. Um, you know, like like we said earlier, this weekend is going to be a tough one. Jersey is never an easy place for us to go to. I've been over a few times and um, yeah, it's it's always a tough one for us. So, you know, like I say, we, we've worked hard. We've had a good few weeks, so let's just see what happens. But it can, you know, we've got another six games or we've got six games now on the bounce to take us through to Ealing. So it's not an easy run, you know, and Christmas and everything in the middle. And like I said, Doncaster at home again is not going to be easy couple of away trips, Hartbury, Boxing Day, and and obviously we went there and and lost. So, you know, that's not going to be an easy ride. So yeah, and then into Ealing. So I think the next six weeks is is going to be tough and and obviously it's how we how we react to each week and what happens and rebuild from there, I think. Yeah. So it's, it's a full on six weeks. Uh, and obviously Jersey but Harvey there, obviously there's the Pirates link and there's that yeah. sort of to it. But then just just touching on sort of the league and the, the league in general, because obviously there's a the review going on at the moment. Have, have Pirates got much of a, a, a say in that? Are you, are you sitting in any of those meetings? And we're know? not part of the strategic review group, but obviously stuff um, does get fed back to the CCC, and um, and we get asked obviously for our views on things. They've been looking um, into a lot more of the rugby side of it recently. So Gavin Paves have been sat in. Um, and and also given their viewpoints in terms of looking at numbers within the league, number of games and things like that. Because obviously, like you say, there's that trade-off between everyone wants to make money, let's have loads of games against, squad. you want to play loads of games, you've got to hold a certain squad size for player welfare, injuries and everything else. So, you know, there is a, a balance, but everybody's, you know, of the same opinion that the championship is, you know, such a worthwhile league. And, you know, if we could just get the right level of funding, you know, it doesn't have to be extreme level of funding, but the right level of funding. And to make everybody, like we said, sustainable, to make sure that there's the right player welfare within the league, to make sure that there's, you know, the aspirations and the development of players to go on to the premiership. Um, you know, and everybody wants an exciting league as well, because like we say, this season so far has been great. That's what everybody wants. They want this, you know this kind of competition. I think, you know, obviously Ealing are an extremely strong side and they've got, you know, huge numbers, you know, similar to a premiership squad, but it's still not to say it's not impossible to beat them. You know, we've we've done it once and it's not to say, like you say, that they have another slip up along the way. So, and Jersey obviously going well and we've been going well. So I think that level of excitingness is what people want from the championship and, and you know that everybody's on the same mindset there. I guess our view of number of games and things differs maybe slightly to some people because for us, you know, the more games we have to travel to, <laughs> we have higher costs of travel. It's okay for everybody, you know, around the the centre of England, if you like, to say, oh, yeah, we like extra games because for them they can hop on a coach for two hours or something of a morning. But every away game for us is obviously a considerable amount of money. So sometimes there's that trade-off between we well, yeah, we'd love more games, but actually we're not we're not in a better position, and actually it, you know it's it's worse for players because 
we're putting you know putting them out there more and more and more and they don't get the recovery time I think that's another factor which has helped so much this season is that you know there's been quite a few breaks because of the numbers in the league and things like that so I think that's actually been good to give players that that break Becky, it's been it's been really refreshing. When we started this podcast, it was you know we wanted to do positive stories around the league, and we've had a little bit of a break, and it's been it's been really I've really enjoyed today. It's been amazing to chat to you. He's talked so positively around pirates, but also where you see the league going, and I think it will make for a great listen. And uh, I really appreciate you you coming on. It's been fantastic. Thanks, Thanks for having me. It's been lovely. <laughs> You're listening to the Championship Clubs Podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter. So our, our second guest today is another familiar face in these parts in Cornwall, having played for the Pirates as well as Bedford, Bristol, Doncaster. Experienced man of the Championship and now assistant coach of Bristol Women, of course. So welcome to Tom Luke. Thank you. It's good to be here. Hello, Tom. You're right, mate. We've also got bonus Becky staying on as well. So we've got we've got the four of us on on this part of the podcast. Tom, uh, great to have you on. Saw you over the summer. Um, can't remember much of that day to be honest. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yes, okay. It was good to see you as well. Yeah, uh, it's good. To, always good to catch up with the old Pirates boys. Yeah. So Tom, just talk us um, a little bit about the, the the day job at the moment. What you're up to? Um, how? How sort of post sort of playing and all that side of it gone for you um, and your general day to day at the moment? Yeah, so post playing for me was like a real, uh, real long process. Uh, I, I just listened to a really good podcast with um, Dan Carter, and he spent six months repurposing himself um, with the CEO of Sachi and Sachi. Like they've gone through a whole pro- repurposing process for him, which obviously most of us don't have access to that level of person, um, let alone that process. So um, I I kind of just stumbled my way through it. You spend so long completely consumed with trying to be a professional rugby player in the first instance. And then when you sort of achieve it or a level of it, then you're consumed with being it. And it is your entire entity, like it is your entire identity. Um, and when you finish it, it's like, right, okay, I'm 30 odd. Um, I've, I've, had a whole career now I've gone from complete beginnership at seven years old to relative mastery of it and now I'm nothing again so I'm right back to square I'm a seven-year-old on the field again so um yeah it was that was an interesting process and I kind of like I probably took the most cliched route through it in that right I've been a professional player for this long now I must be a professional coach because I can't possibly leave this environment um so I chased that pretty hard well, um, coached at Doncaster, um, yeah, coached at Doncaster in the championship, and really kind of fell out of love with the sport pretty quickly in that environment. Um, so I decided I was like, well, no, I still want to be a coach. I still want to develop players and help players through the journey that I went through uh, in a potentially a slightly different way. Um, so I went to Canada for a couple of years and took a head coach role out there, which was which was pretty awesome. Like in Vancouver for two years uh, with my then fiance. Um, and uh, yeah, did that while I was there, weirdly, because it's very part-time there. So it's Tuesday, Thursday night, um, Saturday games. Um, I, I was just ready to say yes to anything. I was there for a month on my own before my fiance arrived. So I was just like, I'm going to say yes to everything, experience everything. So I got offered a job working for a couple of days with this um, guy, uh, Window Fitter, who was one of the local referees <laughs> randomly. Oh, it was odd anyway. Anyway, two years later, I was out pricing up jobs, ordering glass, like doing the full install, everything. 
Um, and I was just working as a window fitter for like two years. And I absolutely loved it because it was completely different. It gave me my first taste of business. Um, my first understanding of we charge you this for this because you won't do it yourself. So <laughs> that's why it costs this much. Um, and then after that, I was like, okay, this is interesting. This is something else I want to dive into. So when I came home, I took a job in a school as a head of rugby. Um, uh, it was a state school. So it wasn't like your archetypal head of rugby, private school, Saturday fixtures. It was head of rugby. Absolutely no need for a head of rugby in the school I was in. It was just, we had an Irish head teacher and she wanted one. So she employed me as a Catholic school. And then I was just working with whatever came through the door. Some years we'd have loads of rugby players. Some years we've had loads of footballers. Some years we've had loads of car thieves. Um, it was a mixed bag. So, um, so that was pretty cool. Coaching in the Bristol Academy, and then I took, and then I started coaching at Thornbury uh, Level Six Club here, Southwest One, uh, and I coached them for five years, six years as director of rugby. And then, yeah, this year I left school, started, uh, well, I'm now a part owner of a gym in the centre of town. So all this time while all this was going on, I was PTing, training myself. has always been like a big passion for me. Um, uh, and I've taken sort of a, a, a stakehold in a gym in the middle of the city. And now I'm full-time running that, PTing, and then assistant coach of the Bears at the same time. And that's the podcast done. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies, yeah. Give the high sign for the verbal diarrhea. Yeah. No, mate, that's it's all right. For me, obviously, I've been on a similar journey to you there, but a little bit back to front with the the, the teaching side of it. And it is, you don't know, do you? You think you know, but you don't know. And I think I always advise players that are in the game now to go and go and try stuff while you're doing it and just see see what you like. And it may help with the transition, it may not. You know, it's everyone goes through it individually, don't they? But it's a fascinating story. I've forgotten you went to Vancouver and you became a window fitter. I mean, that's that's some story. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was a wild time. Um, it was uh, it was a pretty simple time, which was great. Before, like we've had kids now and stuff, and life's a lot more complicated. But it was just the two of us there. Look, like I said, pretty much saying yes to everything. And I ended up coaching um, British Columbia provincial team, and ended up. <laughs> this is a rogue story, but ended up touring South America, sitting in uh, sitting in a gymnasium in the Uruguayan National Stadium, listening to one of the survivors of the Alive story from the plane that crashed and they ate each other. So I've gone from like coaching in Donny, like a year later, I'm sat in this room listening to this guy just in awe of him. That is, and he was one of the guys that trekked away from the plane to try and find help and just kept encountering False Horizon after False Horizon and then eventually found some help and ate his mates essentially. And I just sat there like, all right. Yeah, so, uh, it was a it was a good time. It was a good time. Rugby takes you to some strange places, doesn't it? Just uh, let's let's go right back to the start then. So you've you've done your minis and juniors. Um, we just spoke briefly, but when when did it become apparent that you could earn a living or become a professional rugby player? When, when did that start for you? Was that so obviously you and I are similar age, so um, the game went professional while we were finishing school in '96. And that, that was when it was first a possibility to be a professional rugby player, to do it as a job. Um, I'd grown up in a forces family. So my dad was ex-Navy, um, chief engineer in the Navy. My brother went into the Navy. My mum was in the Navy. Um, so I, that was all I knew. And my granddad was in the Army and stuff, serving the war. So I wanted to go down that route and I wanted to be a helicopter pilot. I was obsessed with Top Gun as a kid growing up, like watch it. God knows how many times. So my sole focus was to be a helicopter pilot in the Navy. That was what I wanted to do. Um, I had asthma as a kid, like I've had asthma since I was three. And when I got to like 12, often um, children grow out of it um, and it can just be a childhood asthma. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't do that. So if you have asthma and you're reliant on an inhaler, you can't join any of the forces. So 
that was that option was taken away from me um, quite early on. And as soon as that was taken away from me, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a professional sports person um, or play or go to the Olympics or do one of these things. I was just sport obsessed. Um, I had trials with Southampton football, uh, which I didn't get into probably for the, probably for the best. So I played in goal and I'm only, I may be sneaking six foot now. So um, that was probably for the best. But as soon as I didn't get in there, I was like, right, rugby is, I'm going to be a professional rugby player. Uh, and I remember in year nine, we had these like mock interviews with people that came into our school to get ready for work experience, and as you do. And they're like, right, what do you want to do? And I was like, professional rugby player. And they're like, okay, if that doesn't work out. I was like, well, that's what I'm going to do. They're like, no, if that doesn't work out, I'm like, no, no, no. You, this is what's happening. So let's just interview as if I'm going to be a professional rugby player. And, they, uh, and that was it. And that was my focus. And then, that, yeah, that was it, really. It was all, all steam ahead. And then who, who was the first, who was your first contract with? Was it with Bristol? Is that when you Yeah. Them? So I went to University of Bath um, doing an HMD in coach education and sports performance, which was basically set up for dossers that wanted to do sport all the time. Um, yeah. So um, it was train all morning, lunchtime lectures where you can eat three lectures, train all afternoon. So I was playing for Bath in my first year, uh, under 19s, 21s. And I come from Eastleigh Rugby Club, which was an amazing rugby club, great grassroots club. Um, but Southampton, where I grew up, is like a rugby wasteland. Like there is no real pathway there. Like Quinns and Irish were loosely associated for a while, but it's it's kind of an outpost. So by the time I went to Bath at under 17s, I probably went a little bit late. Um, I'd barely thrown a pass off my left hand, I don't think, if at all. Um, I remember my first game for Bath under 19s was at King's Zone against Gloucester. Ollie Barkley was 10 and Alex Crockett was 13. I was 12. I was like the greenest kid ever. And I remember rewinding the video about 20 times because I threw a spin pass off my right hand in the game. Like that was a huge thing for me. Playing for ECA, I didn't throw passes. I didn't need to because it was like, it was, it was what it was. But um, I never passed. So my tackling was like just reliant on just mong. It was not, there was nothing, no finesse to it. So um, yeah, I had a really steep learning curve when I got there. Second year of uni then, I went to Bristol because over the I'd, I'd improved a good bit in that year. And then over the summer, they contacted me and said, come training with us. Trained with them. They had some injuries and shortages and stuff. So I ended up being invited to the, train with the first in the preseason, um, which was unbelievable. And then I went on tour to Ireland, played. My first game of senior rugby was for Bristol against Munster at Toman Park, at 18 or something like that, or 19. Um, which was awesome, went pretty good. Played the Middlesex Sevens, went pretty well. And then they offered me a contract of, a, I think, a massive £6,000. It's a two-year contract, um, £6,000 a year or something like that. And I was just like, cracked it, cracked it. I'm in. No need for the rest of uni. Never went to another lecture. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and that was that. So that was my first year um, of professional rugby. And that was a year, unfortunately, the first team unbelievably got relegated. The squad they had was incredible. It was like stellar, but they, um, yeah, they got relegated that year. Well, and then you went up to um, up to Bedford after that. Is that right? And then uh, no, so then I then um, there's a, I got sorry, go on. I just get confused sometimes with where your your path. Oh, it's it's confusing. So <laughs> yeah, at the end of at the end of that season, um, it's important to prefix this with the fact that I was a gobshite. So um, these moves are mainly completely my own fault. So at the end of that season with Bed uh, with Bristol, I. I they restructured everything and they realised they were going into the championship and they wanted to do that with the young Bristolian lads um, and a lot of the the team that ended up being quite successful in the Premiership for that short time um, were put in there. They'd come back off loans with Caffillian and in the Welsh Premier and stuff like that. So 
Um, I didn't get on great with the academy manager um, throughout, and he I've never known anyone take more pleasure in firing someone as that man did with me. And um, so, like, he let me go at the end of my first year. I had another year in my contract, but he just let me go in the middle of it, and I didn't really question it. But I was devastated. I remember, like, pulling over on my way home, having a good cry about it. It was like, dream's over. We're done here. So, um, yeah, I was like, I didn't know what to do. Paul Holland left Bristol at the same time, who didn't mind me. Um, and he'd been the skills coach for the first team. And he'd gone to London Irish. My girlfriend at the time lived in London. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go and start training with them for free. Worked in a restaurant, in like an American diner style restaurant in Kingston. And just did that. Because um, I'd done quite well for Bristol early and played first team and done all right. I got an agent at that time. Um thank god and he rang me and was like we need a um there's a club in italy you need a center and they need them like in the month within the month and this was around december i think so i was just like yeah i'll do it so just on a plane next the next week or so got picked up from the airport by a guy called matt Bayer, who used to play scrum out for samara and um and frank bunce the all black legend was the backs coach so those two picked me up <laughs> i'm sat in the back of this car in italy driving to this place. I've, I've no idea about any of it. I'm 19, 18, 19, uh, 19. Uh, no idea what's going on. And then the next day I'm training on a training field in Italy and, and off I go. And it, interestingly, actually, the reason that came up is because um, Nick Evans was meant to sign for them. And then he heard he had a sniff of the All Blacks again. So he pulled out the contract. Um, obviously, Nick Evans then went on to do what Nick Evans has done, and uh, he saved my rugby career. So it was, uh, I've never met him, I've never spoken to him, but he's always got a place in my heart. Yeah, he had similar, similar contract, I imagine. Very similar. Yeah, I think when they expected Nick Evans got me, they were a little bit annoyed, but there we are. And then, where did you go? And then, when I, and then two years later, I had a great two years in Italy, grew up pretty fast. Um, and then when I moved back, I then signed for Bedford in 2005. Honestly, mate, this is because it's a champ uh, podcast. It's sort of that is probably not an unusual route for players into a championship. And like listening back, it's it's quite funny listening to it. But it's, I, I know of a few of the people like Lewis Grimaldi is in the league at the minute. He's he's done exactly the same thing as you've done. It's, yeah. And it's sort of then you find yourself in the champ, and then like like Bedford. I mean, that's a great club. We we both played there. Um, and then you had some good characters there. You had Emir Lewis, Adam Kettle, those sorts of characters, and it must have been a good time for you. It was unreal, yeah. It was, it was Mike Ray's first year. Um, so he, he's been there a long time now and has done amazingly with that group, considering the, the sort of the resources they work off and the way the club's set up. Um, it's really a testament to his coaching and the environment he created. But that year, I think, um, yeah, going back quickly to what you said about the championship, typical story, like it's a league of hustlers, like it's a league of people that aren't quite good enough. They've got to hustle. So it's just, but, and that, but that's why they do so well when they do go into the Prem, because they, they've had that struggle. And when they're resourced and they're given three meals a day and the best recovery and the best weights and everything else, they thrive because they've, they've literally lived off scraps. So it's, um, yeah, well, I'm sure we'll get to that later, the value of the championship. But yeah, it's, it, like you say, it's pretty typical. Um, but yeah, when Bedford is Mikey's first, uh, Mike Ray's first year. And we lived up to his name fully. So Mikey Raya is is championship riding slang for all day. And um, I think I dragged, my mum was actually genuinely concerned about me being an alcoholic by the end of that year. So every Wednesday, every Saturday, bar none was hard on the juice with the boys. And then most Sundays. And we, in that year, we came second in the championship, or their national one, uh, behind Harlequins, who'd, who'd been relegated. And they were playing every week with Andrew Mertens, Will Greenwood, um, 
Hugo Monnier, people of that nature, like uh, Mike Brown's first, his break his first season, I think. Um, yeah, we came second to them in the league, and then we, we came runners up to them in the Power Gym Trophy as well. So like we had a stellar season. We were we were winning every week, scoring bucket loads of tries. We had half the Northampton team that won the European Cup that were on the right at the end of their career: Ali Hifa, John Phillips, uh, people like that, Junior Paramore. Um, and then we had a load of young guns that went on to do great things. Swane Tongawea, um, who else was in that group? There was loads that went on and did some really good stuff. Carl Dixon went on and had, you know, young lads at the time went on and have great careers. Amazing. I didn't realise those guys were still there from uh, from Northampton. Um, so, yeah, Mikey Ray, on his, on his nickname, I was driving back from Wales with, when I was on a training course with a guy from, from Wales and Mikey calls me when I was at Bedford. He actually comes up in the phone, doesn't it? Mikey Ray. And this guy's pissing himself going, <laughs> who's your mate that's on the pistol? <laughs> I know, this is my question. Yeah. It doesn't announce when someone's on the piss when they ring you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's actually the real Mike Rare. But uh, yeah. then we did we sign the same year at Pirates and we can bring these guys in and sort of talk about that period as well. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, so I I we signed for Pirates um 2008, 2009. I, I left Bedford in 2006. Oh, there's another club. There's another oh yeah. Oh, there's more. There's more. Um Signed for a club in Ireland. Um, so I went and played club rugby in Ireland with the, co- the, the coach, a guy called, um, what's his name? Uh, who's a, he's a backs coach now at Wasps. Um, oh, well, I can't remember. He's gone to Manchester. I know the one you mean. Yeah. Ian Costello. Ian Costello. So, yeah, because he, uh, he was the academy coach at Munster at the time, or development coach. And they had like a dearth of centres. They had no centres. So he's like, yeah. Sign, do well, like you get some games, probably like A-League, um, not A-League, sorry, um, Pro 12 when the guys are away for the Heineken Cup and stuff. So I got there, it was all going pretty well actually and uh, I was like, okay, yeah, it's a good move and then um, then they signed uh, Lafimi Mafi and Rua Tapoki and that was the end of that. So those boys were just like nailed on every week and I was just like, sweet. So I just played club rugby in Ireland for a year and a bit, which is great. But I was pretty keen to come home. Limerick is... Uh, not a great city for an Englishman to live in, to be honest. <laughs> like, uh, it's pretty bleak. They don't, really don't care for the English here, especially if you're as English as me. They don't like it at all. So um, I used to get gouged, punched, kicked, abused most games. And then at the end of it, I was just like, okay. Like when I was out on the booze, I'd have to pretend I was not English and stuff like that. Because, right, yeah, I have to park my car up against walls so you can see my number plates and stuff like that. Um, it was pretty bleak. But so I came home anyway. Um, Doncaster had an injury. Yeah, I came home to Donny then. Donny had an injury crisis at 10. I just I just ruptured my ATF, I just ruptured my ATFL in my ankle at, at, in Ireland. Um, but my agent was like, oh, Donny needed 10. And I was like, that was like perfect for me. I was like, yeah. All my, fa- all my dad's side of the family from Doncaster, I was like, yeah, 100% I'm in. Lynn Howells, who coached me in Italy, was the coach. That's why he wanted to sign me. Um, so luckily, when I got there, I walked into the, med- uh, to the medical room, the physio room for my medical. And I, the first person I saw was a girl called Vicky Chapman, who is like long-term Donny physio, super physio. But I'd met her on the piss at the church in London a lot, playing for Bedford because she was friends with a lot of Northampton boys because she's from Northampton. So I was like, Vic, you've got to get me through this medical, mate. Like, <laughs> I'm, my ankle's buggered, but you need to get me through this. And she was like, all right, I'll see what I can do. So I've got no ATFL, so my foot is just, like, dangling around. She just basically, like, put me in a cast every day so I could get through training. Doge me up with Diclofenac. Every day I go home, just sit with my foot in, an, in a cool box full of ice water for, like, the rest of the day, however many hours that was. 16 hours a day I'd be in this cool box. 
And then she just about got me through that first month and then they signed me for a year and that was it. I was back in the champ. And then you, you had the operation. <laughs> no, 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 that was before combined as well. So I didn't even have an op on it. There's no point. <laughs> so, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, then I was off to the Pirates after that. I did all right that season, then signed for Pirates for um, a couple of years at the same time as you did in 2008, 2009. Yeah, it was um, <laughs> good times as well, weren't they? So, uh, what sort of looking at Pirates we've got Vic, Vic Ross and, and Becky in as well so what I suppose the question is what are your memories of TL Tom and myself at that period and you know well, Becky especially what, what can you sort of remember from that period of, we did really well on the field didn't we it was a change obviously um, Sterlo came in and sort of transformed the, the club a bit but we also had a, a period where we went from Camborne down to, to Penzance and involved in that move as well so it was uh, as a player I didn't even think about it you know it's just like yeah we just play and have a great time off the field and if a club wants to move grounds move grounds no one even thought about why, why or how um, but yeah just sort of like your, your memories from that period really um, well, yeah, probably for me, because I joined in 2010, and obviously you were both there then. Um, I said earlier, I joined just as we made the move back from Campbell. Yeah. So um, I think you just won the BNI Cup as well, and and then we moved back to Penzance. So I didn't ever know Pirates at Campbell, um, and I actually lived in Newcastle at the time, so I hadn't ever even been to a Pirates game when I started. Um, and then obviously we had a great few years really with you guys my first few years obviously it's my first experience of of working within that environment um I, I grew up in Madrid and and was always at Madrid rugby club obviously kind of as a child but I think coming into that environment for me you know it was totally different to anything else I've ever done I've trained to be a chartered accountant with Deloitte so you know it's very different <laughs> setup um yeah we had a brilliant few years didn't we I think I said earlier you know at that time championship was was great it was well funded um you know we had a lot of fun there was the playoffs there was that excitement um you know we had we had Bristol and things like that in in our league and you know it was it was great few years and obviously I was younger and I don't think my eyes had been fully open to you know all that the championship is about and even just listening to the stories then it kind of brings back you know what I love about the championship really that everyone does work you know they fought to be there <laughs> it is a hard slog and it's a graft and there's nothing I say this to people who you know when I say my job they're like oh that must be amazing I'm like there is nothing glamorous about the championship <laughs> let's be honest <laughs> so you know but yeah we did have some great we had a great few years then I think you know the squad that we had and the, the guys you know that you played with and you know like I said earlier you played with Gav and Paves who are still with us now and 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 that's shaped who we are and where we are really, where we are now. Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating looking back, isn't it? That, especially that period, Tom. We often it's our second season now. We've done about sixteen episodes on here, I think. Um, and it's sort of I, I often refer to looking back to that period as sort of the rose tinted glasses. But actually, I think it was it was a pretty good time to be involved with it. We had we had Sky Games, didn't we? We had, we had that side of it, and I don't know. It sort of it sort of lost its meandered a little bit, hasn't it? Since that that period, and I'm not, not sure why. If that's an RFU thing, or maybe the clubs need to take some responsibility for it as well, because that's often overlooked. But for someone that's been out of it a little while now, Tom, um, what's sort of your view of it then and, and now, sort of looking back in and with your contacts in the game? Um, I think that that time was really was a golden period. I think um, Sterlo deserves a huge amount of credit for that um, within our organisation. I think 
in terms of personal development is absolutely pivotal to my life and the person I've become and it, it improving me as a person and waking me up to a lot of things that I really could have learnt, do, done with learning a lot earlier. My journey may have been less arduous and less sort of um, windy had I learned some of those lessons a bit earlier. And if you look at what a lot of the young men that are involved in that group have gone on to achieve, I don't think it's a coincidence. They've all come from the same place um, and they've all had that grounding. We've still had for a year or two years. Um, and they've seen what can happen when all of you buy into the same concept, all of you buy into it like wholeheartedly, commit to it, trust each other and, and shoot in the same direction, what good can come of it? Because the championship can be quite a negative place sometimes. Like because of that graft and because of that journey, there's like an element of feeling hard done by, there's an element of like scrambling over each other. And we didn't have any of that. We were all there for each other, for the greater purpose of the group. And, um, and I think a lot of boys learned a lot from that. Um, and you and you see it where where people go. They tend to go into good environments or create good environments or become sort of uh, cultural architects for their environment. Um, they're not. There's not too many boys that have come out of that group that are just sort of wallflowers that sit back and let things be. They'll go into somewhere and they'll they'll make it. They'll have an effect on it. Like we're seeing Morgs now moving on to Worcester. Obviously, Gavin Page has done unbelievably with what they've done with the Pirates boys. Um, but you see as far up, like as Cookie's doing great things up in, in Worcester, running a really good coaching company up there. And, and you just see it all over, like you running this podcast, guys, it's like a really positive thing for the championship. You, you don't have to do it, but you are doing it. You're contributing in a positive way. And, and we see it all the time through boys that have come out of that group. Well, I, I, maybe I'm biased and, I, and I, I'm like hypersensitive to seeing them, but, you know, that's, that's my perception of that group. Yeah, it's yeah. Cheers for that, mate. It's, it is. It's not, and it's the influence he had on me. Maybe was not necessarily in my rugby. It wasn't my rugby side, but sort of the, the life side, and you know, sort of how to treat your people and that caring side. And I think learned learned a huge amount from that, and how you position yourself socially uh, amongst your friends, your family, you know, and, and those sorts of things. Like, like you say, you, you're late twenties, mid twenties. You're impressionable, aren't you? You know, these people have a huge, huge importance on your sort of path with where you go and what sort of Gav and Pays do now at Pirates is great. And like what Mike does at Bedford, what Bodes is doing up at Doncaster, they, they have an influence on a young person. We, we're young people in your 20s. You, you're very green to the world. And if you've only known rugby, those are the people you look to for guidance and advice, aren't they? And I think we got lucky there with Sterno, but we also got lucky with a group of people that the club had signed. Uh, we're all of an age of 25 to 30 where we, we, we were impressionable, but we were, if we were told and respected in the right way, we could go and achieve good things. And we did. And it was a, a really good part of my life and re really grateful to everyone down there. So I, nice. think, I think Ian Davis deserves a good bit of credit for that as well, because he came from a really different environment and he's a very different person to and what the two of them combined just worked great together because the Pirates went from a model of paying big money to pretty average players to going to getting players that no one had heard of and developing them. Um, Phil Burgess, Grant Pointer as good examples of that. Um, like no one had heard of Burge when he arrived except Ian and he brought him in and now look at, like, look at the career he's had. It's been, you know, it's been incredible. So um, I think... Uh, as a combination of the people that they brought in, people with the right ambition, people with the right personality for the task, I think it was a huge, it was a sea change for, for what Pirates had had before. If you think about the first year we arrived, some of the players in that squad and some of the probably salaries that were being paid out compared to in our last year. And the wage bill was quite high, I think, but 
I think people were being remunerated in the correct manner and and you had this like young, hungry group coming through. So like Hops, for example, he wouldn't have been on a massive whack. He'd have been on a reasonable working wage, but he then went on, I think he went on to play for Queensland for the next five, to, like five, ten years, whatever. Like he was that standard of player by the time he left us. You know, he's been touted as like the next Conrad Smith, which was, if you played with him and seen the trotters he had for hands was an absolute joke. But um, still, he went on to have an unbelievable career. Um, you know, and he was recruited at a time when he was hungry and he wanted the opportunity rather than being like a bit of a fat cat in the championship and just taking a big salary and not really offering that much to the group. So, yeah. And then, um, touch on Donny earlier on in the podcast, sort of you had two stints there and you went, you went back and you went back, mate. And, uh, you know, it was, um, that period at Donny was tough, wasn't it? You know, like there was, there was coach movement, there was player movement. Uh, you, you know, you said you, you fell out of love completely with the game at Donny and, you know that's that can sometimes happen in a game when, like, say, for, for whatever reason. But has that helped you today as, in, as a as a person? Uh, and would you would you consider going back into the champ as a coach, or are you quite comfortable where you are now? I think when I my first season back at Donny was great. We had a really similar group to Pirates. We had a lot of lads that had been recruited out of that had played like a handful of games for Leinster or Ulster in the in the um, Pro Twelve at the time. Um, we had some hungry young foot like Tom Francis, Jack Yandel, um, people like that, some real quality players. And we had a great season. We, just, we really struggled with injuries. So I think we'd have had a, like a really good run at the semis and final if we'd have kept everyone fit. Um, I played fire for the whole season, which is my first full season playing fire. And I come from a really good spot in, in Pirates where I'd gone through a whole big confidence thing and, and I um, got really quite badly injured. I was out for 10 months and I really struggled for confidence and form. And I was coming through the back end of that and the lessons that I'd learned in that time had started to really embed. And then I got in an environment with Brett Davey coaching who, Brett's someone that has his detractors, but for me personally, I've probably played the best rugby in my life in the two, in two seasons that I've had with him coaching me. I felt like he understood me as a player, understood, and he valued some of the things that I, I felt like I was good at, and and confidence is huge, so that allowed me to play better. Um, so we had a really good season. I understood how he wanted us to attack. I formed a great relationship with Chris Hallam, um, who's still a great mate today. We were the ugliest halfback partnership in world rugby. Like he would throw out absolute pies to me, but it was always exactly where I wanted it. Um, and we just we just like formed a really good relationship, and the team played really well. Loved it. The second year, we did struggle. We let a lot of those boys go. There was no reinvestment in that group. They all deserved to be kept on and, and reinvested in, and we didn't do that. And we and I think possibly Brett thought he could... I don't think he understood what he had when he had it and the luck that he'd got in recruiting, and he thought he could just do the same again. And then the next group we got in were, were pretty similar to the group I spoke about at Pirates when we first got there. They were probably get paid too much for too little. And um, uh, yeah, so we were in a relegation battle. Brett left. Um, Clive Griffiths came in, and it just turned into an environment that I didn't, I didn't enjoy. Being in the coach, it's probably being in the coach's office and seeing the two sides of the of the coin. You know, we we gone from being a really tight group on the field and off the field the year before to being a slightly fractured group. And I can see conversations happening on one side that maybe didn't align with what was being said on the other side, and that like. For all my failings, I'm I'm always straight straight with people, straight down the line. I did, that doesn't 
like authenticity and consistency are two, like my biggest um the things that i value the most highly in people and i wasn't seeing that and I, so i just couldn't stay on board with it and and yeah speaking to how it's influenced me re- uh, since it gave me real perspective on the game and and this is one thing I, like you say to people like go and experience stuff and um go and try stuff while you're playing i think probably the biggest advice i could give to people is to go and do something that gives you perspective on your day job because especially in the championship like not as many people care as you think care <laughs> like and you are certainly not as big a star in your own story as you think you are so like Go and do something that gives you that perspective and makes you realise that actually it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's a great 10 years, maybe, if you're lucky. And it's and you're going to make some fans happy every weekend, hopefully, if you're a club, if you're at a club that's got some. Um, but ultimately, just experience, enjoy it for what it is. Enjoy the moment, but understand it's not the be-all and end-all. There's way more to life and way more important things. And as soon as you do that, it's really quite liberating because players put a lot of pressure on themselves and uh, they really need it. Um, you know, it's important to want to do well at whatever you're doing. And that's just through life. But in terms of rugby, I think people often take it take it and themselves a little bit too seriously. And that's probably what that season and sort of thinking back to that season has taught me. Mate, it's, it's so it's so true. And then let's just um let's we've we finished with your your current role. Um you see working at Talk. I imagine that's the name of your gym. Is that right? Correct. <laughs> yeah. On brand at all times. Yeah, good guys. <laughs> <laughs> So Bristol, Bristol women, um, obviously working with Wardy. Uh, I spoke to you earlier on in the year about it. How's how did that come about? Uh, how are you enjoying the women's game? I've I coached at Litchfield way back in the day when we had like Emily Scarrett and those types with us, and it was an amazing experience. And I, I've always wanted to get back involved with it. I'm involved with Georgia at Overbridge, and I'm I'm loving it, and it's it's a great experience. How's it um, being involved with the AP15s and? At Premiership level, at a huge rugby club, um, how, how have you settled into that this year? And, and I, I suppose there's potentially some similar um, similarities between champ rugby and the women's game because of the yeah. time and the, the, the money involved. Yeah, there is a lot of similarities. I think we're, we're probably at Bristol, we're a lot more professional than we ever were at Pirates. Um, and I was saying this to Wardy last night, we had a conversation, we had a, um, a talk on nutrition and, I, and just right after it, me and Wardy, just like had a little two minute chat and we were like, mate, we were awful. Eh? And he was just like, to be fair to Ward, he was like, yeah, I didn't, I never had any money. So sometimes I just didn't eat. I'd have protein sandwiches and that was it. Like, um, And then, you know, it, and that was just how it was. It was this wild west um, cowboy country. But um, the girls have got, you know, they get fed after every session. They get supplements given to them. Like we have a lot of Welsh girls play for us. They have a long drive after training. So um, the club are getting in like a Nutribullet and they get their own cups and then they, they can make their recovery shape for the way home and stuff like that so every training is filmed we've got drone footage we've got camera on the end camera at the side the girls can review all their training uh we, we review all their training they can send us playlists of clips that they want um some advice or feedback on and we can just do that remotely wherever so in terms of resources it's it's probably far and above what we had even at the, the season that we were in the championship final um, which is amazing. And it gives the girls the very best chance of achieving whatever they can achieve under the current circumstances of maybe not being professional or having another job as well. Um, but yeah, it's 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 good. Go, I was very mindful when Wardy rang me. I, I recently found out I was the second choice. I might have even been his third, but I haven't found out who his second ones yet. But he, uh, he rang me and was like, oh, I need a backs and attack coach. I've just, take, I've just got the job. I need a backs and attack coach. Now, Wardy and I, like, we got on okay with teammates, but we never, like, firm friends. So it was a bit of out of the blue. Uh, and I was, I was kind of, like, immediately reluctant. I was like, I've come away from that game. I've gained this perspective on it. I don't want to get dragged back into it. So I was initially reluctant. 
But then I started thinking about it and, I, and I've become a bit of a Bristol supporter while living here because the way they play the game, like Semi Rodrigo, if you can't support him, if you don't support a team he's playing in, then you've got something wrong with you. You don't like rugby because he's just amazing. So um, I kind of get excited when I watch him play Charles Piertow. So I was like, do you know what? Like, let's go for it. I've been at Thornbridge six years. I was starting to get a little bit stale. We'd just come off the back of COVID. I hadn't coached for a year. So I was like, yeah, okay, let's, let's do it. And um, yeah, it's just gone from strength to strength, really. I've just, I've really enjoyed working with Dave. Like we've both obviously matured a lot and changed a lot. And we were, people always used to call us like twins. I always say he's my evil twin. We're both like quite dwarfy, both love a quiz. Um, both don't really like following rules and stuff like that. So, um, but working together, it's actually worked really well. We're, we're on the same page 99% of the time, which is great. Um, and we formed a good relationship with the girls, um, which I think is, is vital because... I got warned a lot when I first took this job, like, oh, you'll find the politics difficult and uh, the women's game's interesting to coaching. You've got lots of different social dynamics that you don't have in the men's game. But I think because I come from the outside, I have no preconceived ideas of the girls. I treat them all as I would treat anybody else. And Wardy is the same. He has a far better idea because he's obviously married to an England player. But, um, but yeah, the, the girls have just kind of reacted to that. And obviously success creates good culture. So... <laughs> And, and vice versa but if, you, if you're winning on the field people everyone tends to be quite happy most of the time and just uh, from your own development side um do you get much involvement with the with pat and, and, and that side of it do they, do they support you guys as well um as a coach development point i suppose it's, it's about time as well I, I don't know if you'd have all the yeah so i mean that time for me is, is my i'm time poor like, I, i'm super busy so with the gym and two kids and stuff like that so i, I can't access as much as i would like to but the club have been absolutely incredible. Pat is Pat is ahead of uh, of the ship, like in every sense. And the rugby, the, the women's rugby, comes under his remit now. If it comes under Pat's remit, he has control of it and he knows everything that goes on within it. So he has been, he's like Shadow does, um, giving us feedback. He knows all the girls' names. So when I'm in the coach's office, um, so Wardy's in the coach's office with all the men's coaches all the time, and I, and when I'm in, I'm in there as well. So they'll say, "Oh." We watched the game on the weekend. Uh, notice you struggling a little bit in this part of the field. We had that problem a couple of years ago. This is the fix we used. And they'll say, like, so we'd have Siali coming short and Charles out the back, and then we spray, like, go wide to Marahan or whatever. And then they go, with you guys, if you've got Rideau coming short and Snowy out the back and you can go wide to Grace, they know everyone's name. And it's, like, a tiny thing, but it makes a huge difference to us, as a, like, within sort of validation for us and our project and our, and our setup. So... Um, yeah, Pat's been incredible. All the coaches have been incredible, really giving with their time. We've got a full-time group of girls that do skills with the boys as well, which is unreal. And the difference it's making to them, we're seeing it come through now, is, um, yeah, is marked. So, um, yeah, I can't speak highly enough of the club and the development opportunities. And the, they've not just paid lip service to this alignment and integration. They've, they've done it. They've like, well, they walked the walk. And, uh, and it's only going to keep improving, hopefully. And there's going to be more girls working there full-time. Um, more integration with skills because as, as well I think part of it is building trust and the building trust in the men's coaches and the men's players now to say right we, we can have these women's players in here they don't drop our standard their skill set is super high they're super professional there's absolutely nothing they're only going to grow our environment and elevate the environment so 
part of it has been gaining trust and then maintaining it as it is in any relationship. But um, but yeah, the club have been have been superb. Mate, that's classic. So I, I love it because obviously I've got a big passion for the women's game, and it's uh, it's great to hear that it's, it's been done for the right reasons as well. Uh, obviously, you've, we know you've got you're a client at eleven, so we'll 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 wrap it up there. I don't know if you you've got anything else you want to add, uh, Bex, or any thing, Ross? Any questions for Tom before we finish up? No, it's just fast, another fascinating insight into champ life, and you know the way the way your career's gone, and the stories you've got, and the memories you've got. Just pays testament to how important a league it is for for all the lads that have been involved in it over their careers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think probably one thing I, I'm sure all your guests say this that have been involved in the championship, but I think what the RFU, the environment the RFU have created of such instability for the championship, it makes it impossible for clubs to to double down on their infrastructure, double down on their investment. And I think it's an absolute travesty. And I think that whoever's in charge at the top, I know any big organisation that like has wide-reaching roots is difficult to manage. Uh, and I get that completely. But there's so much evidence to say that the championship is a worthwhile league for the national team and, and national players playing in that league. And Saracens, who are European and Premiership double winners repeatedly, Exeter double winners, just littered with championship players. Um, you know, Nick Dolly coming off the bench for England, championship player, like he's as he's rooted in the championship as anyone. So I think it's an absolute travesty. And I think stuff like this, your podcast, keeping it in the forefront of people's minds is so important because it, it's so easy to just let it go to waste. And I, and I think that would be like the biggest crime of all. And they'll and they'll reap what they sow in five years' time when you've got green green academy kids coming through that aren't ready to play, that don't understand the seriousness of week on week league rugby and the consequences to uh, to throwing a bad pass or or to doing something because they want to rather than what they should do. The England team will, will eventually reap the, the consequences of that, but uh, hopefully we can avoid that and we can get some investment into the into the second tier. That was the Championship Clubs podcast. Be sure to come back in a fortnight's time and follow us on social media at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter.